There are tens of millions of people in the U.S. and multiply that many times over if we're talking globally, acting as family caregivers for loved ones with serious illnesses. In the U.S. especially, these legions of spouses, adult children of aging parents and more do what they have to do and often figure out the hard way how to get the additional help they need. This bumpy journey has become practically legendary in the past few decades in spite of all the organizations, online resources, driven, excuse me, condition-driven chat rooms and services, many of them outside of healthcare, that have erupted to help smooth the way. Indeed, the crisis nature of the way in which a major illness often strikes families has perhaps allowed the healthcare system to respond similarly without the appropriate and reliable system approach that's improved other areas of patient care, including active engagement with family members. Can this change? What's the connection between caregiving and family caregiving, professional caregivers and family caregivers, and how does compassion not get squeezed out of today's busy, complex, high-tech world of medicine? We're going to at least lean into these big and important issues on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, offered bi-weekly and also four-year later listening and convenience, please tell others via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan. I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. The circumstances we're going to focus on today um, are most of all those where end of life is near or the likely result of a diagnosed condition. But my hope is that with the assembled guests, the lessons and ideas can migrate and infuse themselves more broadly. And I hope you'll let us know if we succeed. Joining me in the studio is Arthur Kleinman. He's a physician and anthropologist who is now in his 35th year at Harvard University. The Esther and Sidney Rabb Professor of Anthropology, Dr. Kleinman is a leading figure in several fields, medical anthropology, cultural psychiatry, global health, social medicine, and medical humanities. Most recently, he's been interviewed and written very movingly about taking care of his longtime spouse. You can read more about Arthur Kleinman and all our guests today on IH. Org. Welcome, Arthur, to WIHI. Thank you for having me. It's great. Joining us by phone, Jeremy Boll is the Chief Medical Officer of North Shore Long Island Jewish Health System and an Associate Professor of Medicine at Hofstra North Shore Long Island Jewish School of Medicine, brand new school this year. Dr. Boll is responsible for the overall professional management of clinical, educational, research, and operational issues related to medical and clinical affairs. He's a nationally recognized leader in designing medical care models for older persons. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. Terrific. And at Jeremy's side is Dana Lusbader, also on the phone. She's a medical intensivist and the section head of palliative medicine at North Shore Long Island Jewish Medical Center. She is the founding director of the innovative 10-bed palliative care unit at North Shore University Hospital, which provides critical care and palliative care to ventilator patients with terminal disease. Dr. Lusbader is also the program director for the ACGME accredited Palliative Medicine Fellowship at North Shore Long Island Jewish. Welcome, Dana. Thank you very much. And also in the studio is Andrea Capsenow. Andrea has a background in nursing and public health, and she's a vice president at IHI. She's on the research and development team here and leads the portfolio of programs to improve performance in hospitals. Since 1995, she has directed breakthrough series, collaboratives, and other improvement programs. She has a strong interest in the topic we'll be discussing today and has done a bunch of research in this area as well. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you, Madge. All right. So, again, if you're just joining us, and welcome everyone who's gotten on board. This is WIHI. I'm your host, Madge Kaplan, and we're going to be talking about family caregiving and caregiving and how the worlds might meet better. Um, I'm going to start off uh, with Arthur Kleinman, and I just also want to thank him in advance. Uh, We're going to share some of his images and slides. Uh, Arthur speaks all over the world to many medical schools, and he has uh, generously allowed us to take from some of his uh, very well- um, 
put together slide presentations. So you'll see some of those slides as we go through the program today, and you're welcome to download them at the end of the program. So Dr. Kleinman, who tells me I can call him Arthur, (laughs) uh, you've been a prolific writer, teacher, and thought leader about medicine and culture and humanism for years, and your concerns and wisdom about caregiving and family caregiving are what recently caught my attention. So I wanted to start with the ways in which family caregiving became so central to your life and what you discovered along the way. Well, I I had, um, Madge, I had been in this area for like 40 years, so it's not new to me, but it was radically different when I uh, had to take care of my wife who uh, regrettably died last uh, spring but had Alzheimer's for about eight or nine years. And um, and that made me think very hard about caregiving, which before that I had always more or less taken for granted and thought that both as a clinical teacher and a clinical researcher and certainly as a, as a well-qualified clinician that I knew everything about, but I really knew relatively little about. And so when I'm talking about caregiving, I'm talking about the most fundamental human aspect of medicine and healthcare systems. It's the part that gets left out of uh, models generally, and you don't hear it in healthcare uh, reform debates or in health financing uh, talk. It's about practical things like helping disabled family members with uh, uh, ambulating, eating, bathing, toileting, etc. And it's about emotional things too, like being able to endure, sustain, have resilience for the kinds of emotional challenges that go with uh, someone uh, having to provide care for uh, another deeply loved person who is uh, impaired, in, in usually in very serious ways. And it's also about solidarity. It's about moral things, because there comes a time in caregiving, especially caregiving for the most serious illnesses at end of life, when there's not much that can be done, and when what the what caregiving is about at that time is presence, being present for those in need, and being humanly present is critical. And the last thing about caregiving I just wanted to say to open things up is that um, it is under assault economically, institutionally, and culturally. And it's by no means a given that the resources that we take for granted that families have access to will be there for them. And it's no, it's no, it can't be taken for granted that caregiving will continue in medicine. That may sh- be shocking to some people, but I have um, challenged medical educators all over the country about the fact that so little in the way of educational resource and financial resource goes into training uh, young physicians in caregiving that we could almost say that medicine has given up on caregiving. Um, this is Arthur Kleiman speaking. It's WIHI. We're talking about family caregiving. Um, we're going to get into uh, what the challenges for healthcare and medical education, uh, nursing education, et cetera, in just a moment. I want to just ask you to elaborate on one thing. Um, from your experience, again, you, as you said, you these issues in some ways were not new to you, but they sort of took on a different dimension when you were caring for your wife. How would you characterize the world you were in with? family caregiving and the world of health care? Well, you know, the healthcare care um, professional, physician, nurse, social worker, um, no matter how committed they are, and many, many are committed to their patients, always sees the other person as a patient, not as a loved one, not as an important part of what really matters in people's lives. And they can walk away, and they do walk away at a certain point. The interview may last five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, even a half an hour with a healthcare provider. But after that, they're gone. They've stepped away. they've stepped aside. They may keep up with uh, via telephone or even today the internet, and they're certainly there for return visits. But the the family healthcare provider is there all the time. As my uh, I had a one I have a had a wonderful um, home health aide who assisted me in the care of my wife, especially. Um, as she became uh, first blind, then demented, then paralyzed, um, used to say, she said to me, I work from 9 to 5 and you work from 5 to 9. And that's exactly right, that whatever portion of the day that family member is there, you're there all the time. And that means that it's a basic part of your life. And caregiving is definitional about who you are. And you're either, in my view, present in the sense of really being there, uh, just think of the 
of how we all participate in events where we're like a hand back in a glove. We haven't really slipped forward into that glove. We sort of sit back and listen to things or decide when we'll take part or not. None of that is appropriate when you're a family care caregiver. You're smack in that glove all the time. You're either present or you're going to be facing probably problems, including the potential of a catastrophe if you're not there for people. So... I think that's it, that it's it's um, immediate, it's ongoing, it's um, integrated into the entirety of your day, and um, it has the same dangers and uncertainties that we associate with anything that's uh, both very promising and a real threat in life. Mm-hmm. And um, just one thought I might have um, is that having listened, I hope many people did take advantage of the link of the interview with you on the program Religion and Ethics, but we have often talked about family caregiving as a tremendous burden and drain, and nobody wants to take away from those realities given the structure of our society. But you also spoke about sort of the amazing discovery of what it really means to be there for another person. Yeah, I think for me um, uh, it was a, uh, an incredible occasion to exercise my humanity and to discover who I was through caregiving. It, it, uh, I'd been married for almost 46 years, and until the last eight years of that marriage, my wife had been my caregiver, and she had done everything for me and for our family. And we reversed it um, in the final eight years. And that was, uh, as, as Madge just, you just said, Madge, it was in part a, uh, a burden, but in large part, it was an extraordinary opportunity to discover who you are and what really matters in your life and to put and to be able to do something about it. Okay. Thank you so much. You're just listening to Arthur Kleinman, uh, and we're talking about family caregiving, and this is WIHI, and welcome, everyone. All right, I'm going to now, uh, we're going to head over to New York. Jeremy Boll, uh, Arthur Kleinman's assessment in some ways sounds like a nice challenge in the best sense, uh, provocative perhaps to anyone working in healthcare today. And you come to your role as a chief medical officer with extensive training in geriatrics, addicts, excuse me, geriatrics, and also a visiting doctor's program that you once headed up. So I guess my big question to you is, can a large healthcare system like North Shore, Long Island Jewish, um, help patients and families face end of life and sort of bridge uh, what often seem like very, very separate experiences rather than widen this divide? You know, it is a great question. I, I wanted to start just by letting um, you know and everybody know how much uh, Dr. Kleinman's words resonate with, with us here at North Shore LIJ, and I think for many people taking care of patients and families with complex uh, chronic and life-threatening illnesses, the idea of presence um, is, is such a powerful concept for us, and it's something that we have to build back into healthcare. I don't think... Um, we can we can back away at all from the mandate. You know, we're a very large uh, not-for-profit health system, and our shareholders are really the communities that we serve. And you know, they demand, and we need to provide them uh, the bridge between their goals and needs and what actually occurs. And right now, by and large, I think to Dr. Kleinman's point. It doesn't occur in the American health system. It requires a fundamental reframing of our scope of responsibility beyond episodic care and ambulatory office care. Um, And it has to be wrapped around patient and family needs and preferences at all times in their lives. And I think fundamentally it starts with a humility and a recognition that we need to really listen and learn from our patients and their family members who ultimately are experts in identifying their needs. And as we listen and as we learn, we start to realize that this, these, these um, false dichotomies that are created between uh, life-saving aggressive care and, and palliative supportive care um, are just that, uh, false dichotomies. Uh, patients at all phases of illness and families at all phases of illness need that presence that Dr. Kleinman speaks of. And, um, and what we do right now is only a sliver what we experience is only a sliver of what a family member experiences over the course of a day and night in caring for their loved one. Um, and, and so what we're, what we're attempting to do here in our health system is to build systems of care that attend to those very broad needs and complex needs. Um, you know, and that includes having 24-7 access to support to physicians in the home, 
um, to clergy members, uh, to pharmacies that deliver, to nurses and home attendants who feel respected for the extraordinary work that they do. Um, you know, we, we touched briefly on the role of the home attendant or the personal care aide, and there is no more noble profession that I've ever found um, than the caring of another human being at that very basic level, uh, bathing somebody and, and being a companion to them and supporting them. And so our systems of care need to uh, enable uh, people who go into those professions to feel a sense of reward for the work that they do, to be recognized for the work that they do. And more than anything else, we need time because you can't hurry this kind of caring and presence. Um, and as we build our systems of care, we have to attend to all of those things if we're going to be successful. Thanks, uh, Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy Bowl, Chief Medical Officer of North Shore, Long Island Jewish. I'm going to turn to Dana in just a second, but could you say just uh, a little bit about how you think the uh, brand new uh, Hofstra North Shore, uh, Long Island Jewish, you know, medical school that just started this fall? We're going to. Uh, I'm going to return to even Dr. Kleiman some of his thoughts about medical education, but where do you see the potential to uh, kind of alter this situation with the medical school? You know, we, it, it, for us, this is a fundamental value. So it's built into uh, literally the first week of medical school. Um, when our students arrive, uh, we immediately start training them to be uh, licensed EMTs um, and uh, get them out on ambulances within about six weeks of arrival as a member of the healthcare team. And we, we do that because we've learned that there really is nothing like being in a patient's home to uh, understand uh, what patients and family members' lives are like, uh, how much that environment and their socioeconomic status, their language barriers, um, their what's in their fridge and the like impact on their health and sense of well-being. So, you know, almost from the first day, uh, we're introducing them to longitudinal experiences in the home. We're connecting them with patients, um, and they will be following those patients over four years, uh, both in the home and if the patient gets hospitalized, coming to the hospital as well. If they end up on, uh, in a rehab facility, following them there as well. The idea is to um, not fool ourselves into thinking we can inculcate these values by lecturing to people, um, that it's got to be experiential and trainees must have the time to reflect on what they experience uh, because they'll be seeing a lot of things that don't resonate with the kind of care that we're describing and it's very easy to um, fall into bad habits uh, without an opportunity to reflect with the right role models. Okay. Thanks so much, Jeremy Bull. I'm going to turn to Dana next. Uh, Arthur, let me just give you a moment. Any any comments at all? Or what no, you just I, th I think what Jeremy said is very wise, and you don't often hear that from people who are uh, overwhelmingly involved <laughs> with uh, with education of doctors. So I would just say to Jeremy, make sure that your dean gives you the resources that you need to do those things because I think they're wonderful. Thank okay. <laughs> Memo to dean. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Arthur and Jeremy. All right, Dana Lusbader, you're there too. And, uh, you know, this wouldn't be an IHI program if we didn't turn our attention to really ways, almost concrete ways we can improve things. And I think you're very much in the trenches of doing a lot of that with paleo care. So uh, for the next couple minutes, tell us what some of the, uh, well, give any thoughts you want here, but tell us what some of the things, about some of the things you're involved in. Sure. Um, one of the uh, big aspects to our home-centered program is a, an infusion of palliative care. Um, and again, being very different than hospice, palliative care really helps provide support to patients and their families throughout the disease trajectory, whereas hospice is palliative care simply for the final six months of life. So a big focus of our program is to have palliative care consultation for patients who have advanced or serious illness, uh, really from the time of diagnosis. And one of the reasons we believe that's important, uh, patients live longer when their symptoms are well controlled and their depression is treated and their caregivers are supported. They stay out of the hospital and they actually live longer. And there are a number of studies now that have shown, even as recently as last summer, that patients with advanced cancer uh, who are given palliative care with concurrent treatment for the cancer live on average three months longer, have less depression and improved quality of life. 
So our goal with the home-centered model of care is really to deliver a palliative care in the home where patients are. The second aspect to the program, though, uh, is a strong hospital-based palliative care presence in all 15 of our hospitals. And the reason is that our sickest patients, those with many comorbidities, uh, come back and forth to the hospital, particularly heart failure and COPD, the frail elderly. And by having those patients seen by palliative care teams in the hospital, we're better able to hand those patients back off to the home-centered program and the home palliative care program. And again, this is not just hospice patients in the final six months. This is really for patients with complicated uh, and multiple uh, diseases who are continuing to get a disease-directed treatments. So we're looking at patients in the hospital with heart failure who might have been admitted several times or those that have been admitted three, uh, three times in 12 months or even asking the question, the surprise question, would I be surprised if this patient were to die in a year? And if the answer is no, to really think of what else we can put in place for that patient and their family so that they can get the kind of care they need at home. The last uh, part of our, our program that we're really focusing on relates to communication and the words we use. There are uh, a lot of barriers um, that prevent families from getting the kind of care they need for their loved ones at home. And some of it just simply relates to a uh, lack of knowledge of what palliative care is or other services that are available, or the words that we might even use as health care providers, like, do you want everything done? You know, what does that really mean, and what kind of burden are we putting on people when we say things like that? Um, just like in the ICU when we use phrases like withdrawing care, when we really mean uh, removing a ventilator when it's not in keeping with the patient's preferences for treatments. And when we use phrases like that, well-intentioned, but they're, they're really uh, misguided, these phrases convey a sense of abandonment and really put a burden on family uh, caregivers and decision makers uh, on these sorts of decisions. Communication has to occur frequently as a disease progresses and it's most effective when it occurs with everyone involved in the patient and at home and over time, rather than in a very hasty way or very last-minute way. So one of our big focuses relates to communication. We're teaching a lot of that uh, early on, as Dr. Bowl said, to our medical students. In week seven, we also went out to the medical school and had a very extensive program on advanced care planning and discussing advanced directives, how you would discuss that with a patient. And we really infuse that very early in the medical school. So communication being a big part of our home-centered care program with palliative care. All right. Wow. Okay. Well, that's a really wonderful summary of, of the work that's that's underway. And uh, I, I know I can already say, not even halfway through today's program, that we're going to come back uh, to a lot of these issues uh, again uh, on future programs and sort of see how things are going and what we're learning. So that was Dana Lusbader, and before her, Jeremy Boll and Arthur Klein is here from Harvard, and now we're going to turn to Andrea Capsino. So, Andrea, you've, uh, I think from the get-go, when I came to uh, IHI in probably 2004, but not too long after, I was very aware of your interest in uh, end-of-life and uh, looking at caregiving issues, and um, you have a good sense, in a way, of, of sort of what, what journey has gone on. I mean, we have traveled some distance in terms of at least awareness around these issues. So, so I'd love uh, kind of, as you've been listening to others, your thoughts and also thinking a little bit about uh, this audience uh, that's on the program today, uh, which is probably a cross-section of many different areas uh, of uh, the worlds we're talking about. I, uh, I have been studying this for a long time. I've come a long way since I was a staff nurse on an oncology unit where the physicians would essentially delegate caring to the nursing staff and take off, and it was traditionally up to the nurses to soothe and comfort and work with the family. Um, and I know that still goes on in places today, but I think it's not as common as it was then. Things have improved. I had the um, honor of visiting over at North Shore and saw quite a different picture. It was really quite gratifying. Um, I would say that the, um, there's a whole team of people 
to be compassionate and understand the needs of caregivers. Um, and it's not just the physicians, but it's everybody, all the way down to the frontline staff in a hospital that are taking care of the physical plant. Um, and one thing that's really clear is that you just can't delegate compassion. And um, it's, a, it's a team activity. And if it's a team activity, then there are things that can be learned to make it better in almost any setting, just like we can learn to give antibiotics at the right time. And it really requires, as Jeremy said, the time and the attention um, and the will um, and, um, and really engaging the patients and their families with all the members of the team so that it's not just one person working with them, but that every, they get the sense from everyone. That, um, that this is important. And of course, uh, we've, we've known for quite some time that when you support the healthcare team and they feel supported and cared for, they're so much better at providing support and care for the family and their caregivers. Um, and it just seems like that's the, the magic pathway to making a really big difference. So what would be the, if kind of if we had to uh, sort of start designating, who's part of that team? So when you think about that, you say you can't delegate it, and it's really got to be, compassion can't be delegated, and it's got to be thought of in a team. Who's in that, who's part of that team? Well, certainly all the health care providers that are immediately taking care of the patient, and they could be uh, both in a doctor's office and in a home care agency, in the home health aid, um, in the hospital, um, and uh, you often rely on experts like the palliative care team or a social worker to help straighten things out. Um, but having everyone who's in touch with the patient knowing what the issues are, can't tell you how many times I've had patients say, I got the most compassion today from the woman that came and cleaned my room and straightened the flowers for me. Mm-hmm. And that's a wonderful thing, but it can't be can't be just there. Okay. Say a little more, Andrea Capsinol, about nursing. Uh, I, I was thinking a little bit about, so you started by talking about the things being kind of left to nurses by default to, to provide the compassion and deal with the really tough issues. And I would venture to say that in all kinds of amazing ways, nursing has changed, but I would suspect that there are patients and families who also fear that they're losing the compassion of nurses as well. Nurses who are part of these same systems, kind of going back to Arthur's kind of opening remarks about really what's what's driving kind of our healthcare environments today. Yeah, well, certainly in the hospital where it's it's well known how hard nurses are working and how many papers they're shuffling instead of hands they're holding, that it's harder and harder for the nurses to have the time to spend, to listen, to help work through the problems that the patients are having, to have the conversations that count. Um, and that, you know, if it keeps getting pushed down to someone else who will also be too busy, we're going to be stuck. It has to go back to being part of everybody's interaction with the patient. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. And Jerry Capsinol of IHI. Um, I would, um, we're going to start opening things up for comments and questions, but Arthur, I'd like to come back to you and just sort of get some of your comments as you've been listening to others. Yeah. Well, you know, after, after all these wonderful words, we can say, well, why are we here? And so why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't it happen? And it doesn't happen. And I can tell you that. And the reason it doesn't happen are the constraints. There are time constraints that are very, very real, uh, but can be dealt with. There are emotional constraints. The classical statement amongst doctors was, let's not open up Pandora's box with the idea that if you get into real family issues, you'll be overwhelmed. You won't have time to do the diagnosis and treatment. That's essential. There's financial constraints that are very real, especially for families. There are bureaucratic constraints, the very things we do that improve some aspects of care disable us in this area. I'll give you a very good example would be the electronic medical record, which I've been a strong supporter of for many years. But there's no no place in the current electronic medical record for any of the kinds of recordings of things that matter for caregiving. So you can't get the illness experience. You can't get the kind of family issues into the electronic record because there's no place for them right now. So we've got to change that. The second thing, you know, bureaucracy. You know, we've been talking about systems, and it's wonderful to talk about systems, you know. That's the language we have. But think about it. What are are systems? They're, They're people. Systems are people. And unless you have the sense of personal responsibility for caregiving, 
then uh, the, system, the whole idea of system doesn't work for you. It works against you. And, you know, the great problem with bureaucracy is the as the Columbia sociologist Robert Merton showed many, many years ago, uh, what are called the unintended consequences of purposive action. That is, we take these actions, we have the best of agendas in mind, and yet some unintended consequence happens that worsens what we really want to strengthen. Best example of this are study after study that have shown that fourth-year medical students do worse than first-year medical students on the straightforward interactional social aspects of um, getting a history. That's astonishing. I mean, why should the fourth-year medical students lose, be de-skilled while they're being skilled in technology? Why should they be de-skilled on the interpersonal side of medicine? I think that that, you know, unless we face these real constraints, the barriers, obstacles, head-on, and come up with uh, uh, what might be called a science of implementation of caregiving, a science of delivery, of caregiving, and we really understand how do we overcome these obstacles, then I think we're going to be stuck this way, and much of what we say will sound great on the air, but in practice, it won't be there. All right. All right. Well, I think um, very important uh, challenges and provocations, and uh, Jeremy, you want to say anything quickly before we uh, go to, I, I think that North Shore Long Island Jewish, and there are many other examples or other examples out there that we know are t- trying to kind of uh, rearrange sort of business as usual along the lines that Arthur is talking about. Uh, Anything you want to say before we open things up for uh, chat and comments? Yeah, I would love to. And, you know, I completely agree with Dr. Kleinman, and I think part of the problem is that we tend to nibble around the edges. We try to tweak our system uh, to meet these needs, and that will never, ever work. Um, And so uh, I'll just give you one example of where I think it works. You know, when we we design a program to take care of uh, patients with complex and advanced illness in the home, um, we start with what outcome are we trying to achieve, and we include uh, caregiver uh, reductions in caregiver burden um, and, you know, attending to the preferences of the patient and family in the outcomes that we have to achieve. And then naturally, we build a very different program than we, than we would build otherwise. So, for example, we create um, a minimum of two hours uh, for uh, each new visit uh, that a physician makes to a patient and uh, a minimum of an hour for each revisit. Um, we attend to things like uh, lighting and air conditioning and um, uh, training the uh, home attendants um, to you know, uh, give them the skill set that they need to feel good about the work that they're doing so that they don't um, look for work elsewhere because we know continuity is very important. We make sure that medications are delivered to the home at 20, 24-7, as I said before. Um, and we make sure that we uh, don't force the family to choose between their current providers and new providers if they decide to benefit from hospice care, for example so that, you know, we, we try to um, not get caught up in the bureaucratic constraints that are created by the way the health system is organized around finances. And, you know, we, we've had success with this. I actually am very optimistic in some ways because as we move toward um, health care reform, which is really, I think, health insurance reform, um, and we're paid for managing populations uh, over time, I think the financial incentives actually line up better than they currently do uh, to attend to many of the needs and preferences that patients have that aren't currently being met. Okay. All right. So we'll open things up on uh, both kind of realisms and optimism and everything uh, in in between. Uh, Jesse, you want to remind people uh, how to uh, access chat? All right, so the chat room is now open, so please put your comments in. You can direct those comments to all participants. That's going to ensure that everyone on our session here can see your messages and we can all um, learn together as the questions come in. So one question got into me before uh, we just opened it up, and it's for you, Dr. Kleiman. It's a, a bit of a personal one, but I think it's going to yield some great information here. Um, what do you wish you had done better or differently with regards to the care of your wife? Uh, and, and what did you learn about that experience that you could translate into your own care if, if you ever come to that point? Wow. Well, well, first of all, that, you know, the two parts of that question is a great question, and both parts are good. Uh, let me start with the last part. Um, 
Uh, so, you know, we haven't used the word care receiver, <laughs> but care receiving is equally important to caregiving. And a lot of care has to do with the care receiver and having a voice that care receiving means you have a voice that the that the sick family member the patient has a voice and can can say what it is that matters i think that's the probably the most critical thing and with regard to you know what i learned i learned first of all that um when my wife and i went to all our friends who were leading neurologists around the harvard system to figure out what kind of neurodegenerative disease she was developing not a single one of them not a single one of them oriented us toward the kinds of issues that a social worker would immediately think of. Like, you know, you ought to prepare yourself to think about the home you're living in and whether it's going to be supportive of the needs that Joan, my wife, was going to have over time. Secondly, um, you better start thinking now about how you're going to find the um, home health aid. I'd say that probably was, for me, the most important single thing, and and it made it feasible for me to take care of Joan at home for eight years. And so um, we had just had a fantastic home health aide um, who worked for us for about six years. And I don't think I could have possibly done that if we, we didn't have such a person. But, you know, not a single one of my colleagues at the Harvard Medical School in neurology ever thought about saying to me, hey, you know, I've had a lot of experience with Alzheimer's. You better start thinking about a home health aide. And hence, um, there was no reason that we got to that in as haphazard and late a manner as we did. We just lucked out. And I think a lot of people don't luck out. I have I've had friends right here. In fact, um, uh, uh, friends who lived in the building next door um, uh, to this building, who um, the husband was one of my mentors who died of... Uh, of um, uh, uh, metastatic cancer, and the wife and husband at the end in the last six months of his life were unable to dis- to find a really outstanding home health aide and went through a series of health- home health aides who were not only disappointing but created problems for them. Home health aides who, who weren't, uh, weren't professionally competent enough to do the, the caregiving at home, that who, who uh, stole for them at some stage. This is, you know, th- this may sound like an odd set of problems, but in fact, I think it's rather typical of what you go through. The very great unevenness in terms of home health aids. We don't know from a research standpoint what the content is of home health giving by an aid that would allow us to assess competence, a sort of terminal competence in this area. We don't know what the content is, so we don't really know what the terminal competencies are. And a lot of the agencies that are out there simply provide um, inadequate assessment of people, inadequate training, and you end up with the wrong person. And I I think that I I would just have to thank my lucky stars that we we had a different situation. So that's a direct answer to you about what could have been different in the care of my wife. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much, Arthur Kleinman of uh, Harvard, and got a bunch of different questions here. I think, Dana, I'm going to throw this to you, and Jeremy, if you want to also piggyback on it. So the first thing that Arthur talked about was the sort of disconnect of kind of getting the maybe the best diagnosis or the you know the the best that medicine can offer in terms of diagnosis but no connection at all to what were the implications of the diagnosis that was being shared in terms of how that was going to change life and uh, so let's start with that um, just your sense on uh, your own system or sort of how how does that get bridged right I, I think you know, one of the things that, that frequently happens is, is patients and families are not prepared for what happens as the disease progresses. And part of that relates to physicians not knowing what to say. And as we open our new medical school and teach our residents, one of the things that's very helpful is role modeling a good discussion. And what we started to do with our internal medicine residents is actually role play Uh, discussions uh, with families, difficult discussions about preferences for treatments, uh, preferences for resuscitation, uh, where do they want to be as the disease progresses, Um, and how do you have these really difficult conversations? Just because a family member or patient says, I want everything done, that doesn't mean the conversation ends. It means the next question is, tell me what you're hoping for. 
Right, and I guess the question is really how this is going to become kind of a education more broadly, uh, so that everyone's. And Andrew was talking before about the team. In some ways, you have to begin to see yourself as part of the team uh, in any in a very fluid way, uh, depending on you know who who you're engaging with right then and there. Um, I would. I guess the only other follow-on I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you talked about both you and Jeremy about wanting to sort of bring greater awareness, recognition, reward to home health aides. I think there are a million stories of the ways in which this sometimes works very well. People have been also very concerned often about low wages and whether it really gets the due. Is it a default system or it's the one that we really want to uh, kind of strengthen and empower? What What are some of your thoughts about that at North Shore Long Island Jewish? Should I ask you that, that Jeremy, first? Sure, sure. Um, I appreciate you asking that question. It's one of those questions that we need to, we all need to spend a lot more time thinking about if we want to have the kind of care for our loved ones and ourselves as we move into the future. Uh, there has been a, a, a bit of dialogue, I think, nationally about um, building uh, a, more of a professional ethic into the field of, of um, formal caregiving, uh, meaning home attendance, aides, personal care assistance, and the like, and even developing something akin to a clinical ladder so that um, folks who are in that field can advance and teach others and be rewarded for developing adv advancing skill sets and being able to work with more and more complex patients. Um, that is going to require a sea change in the respect that we show that field, uh, I think locally and nationally. Within our system, um, we, ha we have the benefit of a very, very robust uh, home care agency that's part of our system. And, you know, we can use that agency to provide additional support and training and mentorship to the aides that we encounter, whether they uh, work for one of our entities or they don't and they just, they're supporting a patient or even if they're a private pay aide. Um, and, um, you know, and that can, that can be as simple as providing them with literature um, and a number to call if they have questions and they need advice. And it can be as sophisticated as actually providing on-site training in particular competencies. You know, I, you asked the question about whether this is the, sort of the system that we inherited and that by default we use, um, and is there a better way? And I, I, I don't think there's a simple answer to that. You know, I think um, there's, this, I, there's this idealistic vision of, you know, a loving family with all the resources and people that they need to provide for their loved ones um, at home under all circumstances. But the reality is that most families are not organized that way. Uh, they're more spread out. Uh, more, too many more people are working and have to work than ever before. Um, so I, I don't think we should expect we're going to be successful uh, in just uh, uh, hoping for you know a different family structure. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to have to tackle um, how do we right. create a, a cadre of incredibly experienced uh, personal care attendants who are rewarded and recognized for the work that they do. Okay, thanks very much, Jeremy. Andrea, I want to, uh, Jeremy Bollett from North Shore Long Island Jewish, Andrea Capsano, I want to bring you back in here. There's a question about really the, how to make connections here with long-term care and long-term care facilities. And uh, you know, we, we, we see it all. It's certainly in our view. Kind of any, any thoughts about how we can begin to kind of um, sort of bring the, the nursing homes and the like kind of in, into this uh, system reform? Certainly, long-term care facilities have been working on this challenge for a long, long time. They have the, some of the same issues about resources and time, although they tend to be very compassionate places. And we know that the more the family member is there to, to be engaged, the better the care is in a nursing home. I think in the work that IHI is doing and AAAM and others are doing to bring all the different care settings together, um, and just as we're trying to make sure that patients Patients that are in a long-term care facility don't go to the hospital for for the wrong reasons, but are able to stay in place and get the care they need there, whether it's hospice care or care for an advanced infection that they are expected to recover from, um, any of those connections, which so far are pretty hard to make, if we strengthen them, we can, um, we can strengthen the connections around compassionate care and connections to caregivers as well. Okay, thanks. Arthur. I mean, the other side of this is that um, families have to learn how to go visit and assess long-term care facilities. So my son and daughter uh, came up to... Uh, 
Cambridge to be with me to look at, oh, I think we must have visited 20 um, long-term care facilities. And we found uh, for the last few months of my wife's uh, life where I felt just uh, overwhelmed, could no longer really handle things effectively, we found a fantastic facility, which was Newbridge on the Charles, just a great, great facility with terrific uh, people, a wonderful um, uh, cognitive impairment unit, a uh, just terrific uh, 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 nurses and nurses' aides, and um, and and it took some 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 finding. Um, so I think that the the quality varies greatly, and people are going to also vary in what they expect from a long-term care facility. But what I what I very much appreciated from the way that um, Jeremy uh, uh, spoke earlier was the was the idea that if you have a, a sort of a sense of a system and the family being part of the system, not just outside the system, then um, uh, the how you think of the long-term care facility matches how you think of the family as part of the long-term care process. And I think then you begin to do the kind of planning that makes it much easier for families to come to terms with, with A, uh, are we going to be able to uh, find the emotional strength to decide that we can have a family member outside the family and in an institution? It's a big, big deal to make that, make that choice. Secondly, are we happy with the services available? And third, is this the kind of place that um, we can also be part of the caregiving? I think there are a whole bunch of long-term care institutions today that welcome families in in a very effective way. I think that's definitely uh, changing. Uh, uh, You've been listening, I hope, (laughs) to WIHI. You're just listening to Arthur Kleiman. Andrea Capsinol is with us also in the studio and on the phone from North Shore, Long Island, Jewish, Dana Lesbader and Jeremy Boll. I have a quick question, and uh, maybe I'll kind of throw this one back to Dana, which really has to do with, um, Arthur was before talking about neurologists and others uh, doing a, a diagnosis but not seeming to really be thinking about or certainly didn't speak about uh, what were all the sort of social support things that maybe the family needed to start thinking about it. Um, I've been through a lot of experiences, and people will often comment on this with the people who've been taking care of you, uh, and then uh, a patient, and then things aren't going so well, and perhaps then palliative care enters into the situation, perhaps hospice, and that whole medical team disappears, and suddenly there's a whole brand new host of people, and that disconnect, uh, families really do feel abandoned, um, and uh, I, I won't dwell on exactly what that sometimes looks like, but I'm, I'm sure that's a familiar scenario, and um, I would imagine it's very much on your agenda as well at North Shore Long Island Jewish, which is a kind of training uh, that if there's got to be handoffs, which there may well need to be, uh, how do we uh, arrange that so it doesn't uh, come across as absolute disconnect and abandonment? Right, and that is such a, a great question. In our geographic area, on average, our patients see 13 different physicians in their final six months of life, so already a number of physicians involved in the care. And the last thing we want to do coming in as palliative care consultants is fragment you know, further. So we make a big effort to stay involved. If there is a physician involved in the care, about half the patients, though, uh, do come in without a primary captain of their ship or somebody leading uh, the, the care. Uh, but when there is that physician that's known the patient a long time, it's so important to pull that in. The other thing is that not all patients require the expertise of a palliative care consult team. In fact, there aren't enough palliative care physicians in the country to provide that service. So the other goal is to really raise the uh, skill level of all physicians so that a cardiologist or a nephrologist can provide good basic palliative care. And there, there in fact, is a maintenance of certification through the American Board of Internal Medicine that will be coming out for basic uh, internists, uh, a skill assessment of just basic palliative care for maintenance of that board certification. So for relatively straightforward cases, one wouldn't need the expertise of a special consult team. But for more complicated pain and symptom issues or where there's a disagreement between the providers and the family on the goals of care, what's reasonable to expect, that's where the teams may become involved. 
Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Dana Lusbader at North Shore Long Island Jewish. I'm going to make a very brief mention of something and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start to wind up with more, a couple more questions and comments. I do want to announce that IHI uh, has a new fellowship opportunity sponsored by Kaiser Permanente, an organization that I know is very much in the space that we're talking about today as well. Fellows will spend one full immersion year, immersion year on site at IHI in Cambridge starting July 2012 through June 2013. And the fellowship program offers a rich variety of learning opportunities and it's customized so it can align with strategic priorities of the fellows organization. If you have a passion for healthcare improvement, an insatiable desire for learning, and the capability and confidence to change healthcare for the better, uh, please, we invite you to learn more about the fellowship program now being sponsored by Kaiser Permanente. You can visit www.ihi.org fellowships that's slash fellowships to learn more so we hope you'll uh, check that out and there's a slide up on the um, uh, on our screen here right now I guess um, I'm going to uh, there's a, some interest uh, one of the things that we always love about chat is that people do start to answer one another and uh, that's always encouraged and it's great somebody was asking about uh, uh, navigators uh, for patients uh, with cancer there was a comment in there about veterans as well um, I would like to maybe just uh, start to wrap up with a couple of things about training. Uh, the, the hopefulness, I think, of both what's going on at North Shore Long Island Jewish and I think what these new medical schools uh, have to offer and can start with a really almost a clean slate and start to do things uh, differently. Arthur, you uh, have made a reference many times about the moral training of a physician. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just say a couple things about that. And you also mentioned when we had a planning conversation, an interesting program at the University of Leiden Medical School, you said that's actually looking at family caregiving. Yeah. Um, actually, I've written two books on this, one called The Illness Narratives and one called What Really Matters. And my point is that whether you think about moral uh, life or not, you're engaged all the time in moral activities because our practices animate values that indeed are uh, represent uh, who we are as moral beings. And periodically, uh, just like we say to physicians, don't just do something, stand there. You've got you to step back and think about what are those practices that we're already engaged in and what's their moral significance. So um, the very fact that we're talking about problems in the healthcare system in which physicians and nurses find it difficult to be able to spend sufficient time or when they spend time to do the kinds of things we would expect to be important to caregiving is a part is a, is an example of the what is currently wrong with the moral practices in medicine so that it isn't just a matter of ethical aspirations aspiring for the very best Actually, the enemy, the good can. I mean, so the, I'm sorry. The very best can be the enemy of the good. We want to have good moral practices, practices that really do support caregiving. And my uh, suggestion would be, most of the time, they're just not there, and that the priority system is such in medicine that this is given very short shrift. Now, Leiden does something extraordinary, and I've, I, I, I'm trying to learn more about this because I was the Cleveringa professor at the University of Leiden Medical School a few years ago when I heard about this, but I didn't have an opportunity to actually watch it firsthand. But what was fantastic to me is that they send their first-year medical students out for uh, anywhere from a week to two weeks to live in the homes of people who either have a terminal illness or a serious uh, severe disability and to do the primary caregiving. That is, when they go to the home, they have no medical responsibilities. There's no involvement in diagnosis or the use of medications or anything that's medical. All that they're asked to do in the home is the same thing family members do, to help with the bathing, with the toileting, with the feeding, with the cooking. They do cooking. They make the beds. They clean the house. And I think that there's not, <laughs> nothing could be more realistic mm-hmm. in terms of what caregiving is about. And um, I think that, you know, for, you know, this I've done this my whole life. And I'd say that I've heard, you know, thousands of quote-unquote experts talk about caregiving. 
but I'll bet you they never made the bed in someone's home, that they never helped with feeding or, or toileting. But those are the practices of caregiving. I don't care what you say about the term caregiving. Unless you've practically done things like that, hands-on caregiving, you're not a caregiver. Now, I, I think that palliative physicians are remarkable. I think primary care physicians often also have that opportunity to be hands-on. Not that they always are, but they can be. Same with nurses. Nurses frequently have the opportunity to be hands-on in this regard. Uh, My feeling is what we should say is that you can talk all you want about caregiving, but we don't regard you as a caregiver unless you're hands-on in some way. Now, having said that, I'm not um, naive and I'm not a utopian. I don't expect the professor of medicine to go to the family's house and make the beds or for the uh, intern to feed the patients, okay? But I do expect that having in somewhere in the course of their career some experience like that, that they'll never forget it, and it is central to what they mean when they use the term caregiving. And I think that's the big issue, that, that by caregiving, I don't mean something abstract and romantic and uh, irrelevant every day. I mean the most practical thing you can think of in terms of everybody. Helping someone wipe their bottom after they've they've just gone to the bathroom. Helping someone dry off when they've come in out of a, of a, of a bath. Helping someone to get a spoon into their mouth when they're being fed. If you haven't had experiences with that, you do not know what families are going through. And I would argue that most physicians, because they're young, have not had experiences with that. So what could be better than to implement a kind of Leiden approach in all of our medical schools? All right. Thank you so much, Arthur Kleiman, for being with us today. This uh, reference to uh, a, a medical school program at the University of Leiden is still something I'm working with Dr. Kleiman in his office to see if we can find a link to learn more, and we will share that with you. Sorry, I can't offer it to you right now. All right, Jeremy and uh, Dana, I, I, I think it's going to be – Fascinating. I look forward to hearing kind of where you are able to take all your work, but it sounds like there's a real kind of hands-on challenge that Arthur is laying out on this program, and it sounds to me like North Shore Long Island Jewish is going to be one of the places to watch to see what's feasible. Now, final thoughts from each of you. Well, um, you know, we approach our work with a tremendous amount of humility, and I think that's really... I think critical if we're going to change the system um, and um, we don't have the answers. I think our patients and family and their family members and folks who do spend all that time at the bedside delivering the primary caregiving that Arthur speaks of really do understand what it's like and until we can bridge that it's going to be very hard for us to build the right health systems. The one caveat I would say is that you know we have found in some of our educational experiences when we do um, put medical students, residents and others in those settings, unless we give them an opportunity to reflect and we give them an opportunity to spend time with the right role models as many um, move away further away from it as move toward it and so I think the combination of the direct experience with reflection and mentorship and role modeling is 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 really the key and uh, we will be um, you know we will be on this journey for a very very long time thank you so much Jeremy Bowl for joining quick uh, comment from you Dana also thank you so much for being part of the program Sure, and I, I think Dr. Kleiman brings up such wonderful points about having medical students uh, serve as caregivers. There's nothing, nothing like that bedside flavor. We do take medical students into our palliative care unit where they have uh, certainly an intimate relationship with patients, uh, especially those near the end of life, and are very involved at that stage. And we normalize uh, disease progression and death for medical students in a safe way. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Dana Lesbader and Jeremy Boll, Arthur Kleiman. Andrew, you get kind of uh, <laughs> the last wrap-up uh, role here. I always uh, count on Andrew to have a wonderful kind of integrative uh, thoughts about all this. Well, as, um, as important as this issue is and as challenging as it sounds, and it does, I always look at this and say we have the tools to make it a lot better, and we have people with the will and the passion and while it still seems daunting I I can imagine a time in the future when we will have found some answers and that this won't seem so baffling 
And uh, so I'm optimistic about it. Okay. Thank you so much. And thank you, all of you who joined today. And if you know people who are hoping to listen live, please remind them that they can access the program by tomorrow morning. Uh, It will be on IHI.org as well as available via iTunes. On October 20th, that's two weeks from now or two weeks from tomorrow, we're going to be looking at safety net hospitals on WIHI, and we hope you'll check that out as well. I want to remind everyone you can download the chat and any slides we used on today's program when you log off. There's an option that uh, asks you if you want to do so. If you've just phoned in today's program, you're not connected via computer, uh, email info at IHI.org and ask for the materials as well. We also invite you to fill out a very brief survey because we're constantly trying to improve this program and make it work for you. The people who help make WIHI possible are Mike Sweeney, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rosner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Kristen Shear. And we have this nice music that opens and closes the program. The original arrangements by Aaron Flanders on guitar and Miguel Safasoa on piano. It's my privilege to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving patient care, most of all, for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone.